episode 108, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. And welcome back to another episode of the Syzygy Podcast, joining you live, well, not live, we're recording live, we're in Emily's office, in the, Emily's looking at me strangely. How what do you is, not record what live? What a bizarre, well, I mean, it is, we're live, but they're not listening to us. Hello, listeners, welcome to Syzygy. Emily and I are off to a great start here. We are in Emily's office, is my point, sitting around the big round table in her office, still next to the big blank whiteboard, Emily, I, just, I don't know. I'm this so is, ashamed. It's causing me unrest. But we're back for another edition of the Syzygy Podcast, which is great. It's really nice to be back. And we, we're on a complete roll here. Mm. And to celebrate that, Emily, I've got something for you. Woo-hoo. You gave me a little gift a little while ago when you came back from an overseas conference. I did. Uh, so I've got a gift for you. <gasps> it's present time. Ba-dum, this is going to become a regular thing. It's here great. Uh-oh. Oh, and, and beautiful wrapping paper. Yes, I know. All the way from uh, Royal Mail. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, look at this. Oh, it's not one but two Syzygy uh, branded notebooks. Spiral-bound notebooks, Excellent. as requested, as yes. demanded, can I say. Well, I, as necessary because I was just looking actually today and I can only record one, two, three more episodes and she's over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're not as thick as the as the ones that you've been using recently, but this is as good as I could do. These oh, are from these are the, the Syzygy merch store. So listeners, if you want your own <laughs> Syzygy branded spiral-bound notebook or T-shirt or badge or socks or, you know, there's loads of stuff, just... Go to our website, Syzygy.fm, and follow the links to the store, and you too can be the proud owner of some Syzygy-branded merch. So there and, we go. And um, is that the Orion Nebula in the background? I don't know. It just looks nice. You tell me. You're the astronomer. It, it looks, could be. Well, it's half cut off, so it's quite difficult. <laughs> I don't think it is the Orion, but it might be. I don't know. I'll have, to, I'll have to look it up. But it is very pretty. Well, if it is the Orion Nebula, it's mm. a great way to segue into what we're going to be talking about today. Ah, well, we are going to jump straight in because we're, we don't have any follow-up today. So we're leaping straight into something like we've been on a bit of a roll lately on topics that we've covered before. Mm. You know, we've done like last time we were talking about the biggest explosion ever, right? And we did that back in episode 61. But last time we did a big update to no, 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 no. We need to go more in depth on really big explosions in the universe because we found another one which had, you know, boat status biggest of all time, brightest of all time. So this time we are recapping something that we have also talked about in the past, but we're going in more depth today. And that is the bizarreness of the star Beetlejuice. Yes, so Beetlejuice. Can you remember when we talked about this last time? Uh, yeah, well, I do know because it was, I looked it up when the, the last episode, if you yeah. like, was of Beetlejuice's weirdness, yeah. which was end of 2019. And I think we recorded early 2020 when this was still going on. Okay. So going back a few years now, but like my memory of this is fairly hazy. But I do remember that Beetlejuice, big bright star in the sky, right? One of the bright ones mm. was going a bit weird. It was it was doing stuff, it, and yeah. and the headlines that that you know science journalists had scored from various ast- astronomical papers and so on reports was, oh my goodness, Beetlejuice is about to explode, and all the astronomers went, no, 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 wait, no, no, that's not what we're saying. Just because the star is doing weird stuff doesn't mean it's about to explode. And so we put a bit of a damper on that mm. back in 2020, right? Yeah. So this was when Beetlejuice was going really faint. Oh, this, that was right. when That was all part of that 
that whole exciting period where, yeah, I mean, I remember literally looking up and going, huh, what, what happened to Betelgeuse? Where's it gone? Weird. It used to be there and now it's just this tiny little thing. It okay. Was, it was so, impressive. But, but the idea being if something that bright and that big, because it's a big star. Oh, right? big is big not even star. a we'll good. Get, we'll get into that. <laughs> but something that bright and that big changing and varying by this much like something weird's going on, right? Mm-hmm. And so therefore you make big leap, particularly if you're not an astronomer, but you're writing to sell papers with headlines. Must mean that it's doing something really weird. It's going to explode. It's going to go supernova because it's a really good candidate to do that maybe. Mm-hmm. And no, turns out not. But that weirdness hasn't gone away. So a bit of an update on that today. Emily, <laughs> what's going on? Fill us in. Where do we start? Well, it's a great place to start, actually, with what that last episode was all about, which was sort of pinned around the the late 2019, early 2020, what's now called the Great Dimming event of Betelgeuse. I'm not kidding. Yeah, okay. It's great. It's the Great Dimming. Uh, And this is where Betelgeuse just completely plunged down in, in brightness for several months. And... It took us quite a long time to sort of figure out, hang on, what's what's going on here? And we're going to come back to exactly what was going on. Because that is a bit weird. I mean, normally when you talk about like these kinds of events, sudden changes, like I'm guessing normally that's that got a lot brighter. <laughs> something mm. energetic just happened. Whereas the great dimming is sort of well, something just stopped. Something mm. just turned off then. What's What's going on? So that is a bit weird. It's almost the opposite of last week's episode, Mm. which was all about huge explosions and this is, no, it just got dim and quiet. Mm, It's a bit weird. Very weird. Uh, But then now, so fast forward another, what, three years on now since Betelgeuse did its great dimming, then we're now looking at Betelgeuse getting brighter, Mm -hmm. like really a lot brighter. Really brighter. Like possibly the brightest we've seen it in decades, if not centuries. Okay. And it's now getting brighter and dimmer, so it pulsates in brightness. It's getting brighter and dimmer twice as fast as it used to. All right. There's a lot to unpack there, Mm. right? We've got Big Star, Mm -hmm. went through strange period about three years ago, is still going through weirdness and is now super bright, brighter Mm. than we've ever seen before. And so it's it's changing. It's oscillating. It's it's doing stuff. And that's speeding up too. Yeah. So, so the, the big question there is, what's going on? So can we can we back up a little bit? Yeah. Tell us about Betelgeuse. Yeah, so Betelgeuse is it's um, one of the brightest stars that we can see with the naked eye in the sky. It's actually pretty well visible across both hemispheres, which okay. is nice. Handy. Yeah, so it's um, – Hello to all of our listeners in both hemispheres. Indeed, indeed. You can, you can see it. So Constellation of Orion – Everyone loves Orion. There's loads and loads of local mythology about Orion. Basically, wherever you are in the world, probably the indigenous culture had something to say about the story behind the stars in Orion. It is one of those really just one of those most obvious constellations in the night sky. Mm. Or even asterisms or just groupings of of stars. So um, Orion has, uh, in the kind of more Western Greek mythology, it's a hunt. He's a hunter. He's got. The very, very bright stars of Rigel and Betelgeuse who sit on two kind of opposite corners of the hunter, Rigel being one of the biggest, brightest, bluest stars in the sky and Betelgeuse being one of the biggest, brightest, reddest stars in the sky. Okay. So what does that what does that mean about the star itself? I mean, it's bright. It's mm. in a really obvious place in the sky. You can find it really easily. Mm. So 
What about the star itself? So it's very, very red mm-hmm. and it's very, very big. Okay. So it's a red giant, which sounds being I'm being a bit patronising here, but no, that's that's actually what we call this class it's of set, star. It does what it says on the tin. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So if rewind back to um, a few episodes ago when we did stellar evolution, mm-hmm. we talked about red giant stars. So these are stars that have gone through their what we call main sequence lifetime that period of their lives where they fuse hydrogen to helium just like the sun is doing right now it's in its kind of middle age happily merrily chugging along phase when the hydrogen starts to run out then all bets are off basically right. okay <laughs> and they start to do interesting things so stars will become big and red and this is because there's not enough hydrogen in the core to support that hydrogen fusion anymore at least not at the rate that it used to and so the stars start to do other things eventually they'll start to fuse helium so what they turn to the hydrogen into becomes now the fuel for the next set of fusion reactions And when you're doing that, you're actually producing more and more energy than they used to, which causes the star to expand out, 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 out. And the expansion causes the outer layers to cool because they're much more rarefied than they used to be. It's it's expanded out. So, I mean, it's a fascinating thing. There's so many things going on here. You know, it's very easy. It's very tempting to describe it as the the star wants to, the star needs to start burning other other, other oh, things. Oh, I'm all for, fuel. for personification yeah, of stars. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's helpful, but I mean, it doesn't it doesn't want to, it doesn't need to. Hmm. When it runs out of hydrogen, right, the thing that it's balancing forces against is gravity, and the gravity tries to, you well, know, it just pushes in even harder. So when it runs out of hydrogen to fuse, the gravity pulls things in even harder, which heats up the core which reach you know, until it reaches the point where the helium does start to fuse, at which point it pushes back again because mm, there's mm. lots more energy coming out. So that, that's what we mean when yeah. we say it, it wants to, it tries to. But are you saying that there's more energy then coming out when it's doing helium, which sort of pushes out even harder? Yeah, it's kind of one of these mind-bending things. It's hotter on the inside but cooler on the outside right. than it used to be right. and a lot bigger. So that's why it blows up to this much bigger. How, how much bigger are we talking about? Well, in Betelgeuse's case, it's incredibly large. Betelgeuse is radius. We're not exactly sure what it is. We think it's somewhere between 700 and 900 times the radius of the sun. Holy cow, that's really quite big. Yeah, yeah. which is it's, it's pretty much most of the way to Jupiter in our solar system. Oh, like I was about to ask you, so does that, like how big is that? Does that get us out to like Mercury, Venus, Jupiter? Jupiter. Okay. Yes. <laughs> like I'm way off. That's really big, Emily. Yeah, it's more That's than four really, times the distance of Earth to the sun. Really big star. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. No wonder <laughs> it's the outside's a bit, a bit cooler. Yeah. It's an absolute monster. Mm. So, yeah, so we don't know. It's, it's one of these ironic things. Betelgeuse is one of, one of the closer stars, you know, in the grand scheme of things. It's relatively close to us in our galaxy. And we can do wonderful things with it because of that. For example, we can actually resolve the disk of the star. Right. You can actually, like, it's not a dot anymore. Yeah. You can actually see it as a We can as a see disc. it as wow. like maybe there's a, a, a darker bit there and a brighter bit there and things wow. like that. How yeah. many, how, like, how many stars? can we do that with? It can't be many. Very few, yeah, on the order of hundreds. Because they have to be really close and really big to be able to do that, right? Yeah. 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 So best measurements, which were actually made following up on the last dimming. So the last dimming and subsequent measurements have told us a lot about this star. And uh, and the best 
measurements that we have of things like the mass, the radius, particularly the age of Betelgeuse or its evolutionary uh, point, come from astroseismology. Mm-hmm. So, you know, super just, personal I, plug here. You should see the smile on Emily's face when she says, I get to drop astroseismology yeah, I know, in. I know, I know. Pet and favorite. I get to drop in some of my favorite colleagues in here as well because <laughs> they did some fabulous work um, on Betelgeuse at the time as well. So, uh, this is the work of Meredith Joyce and a few other um, astroseismologists. And they looked at um, Betelgeuse and they were able to determine some of these things much more precisely than we had before based on pulsation work and based on some wonderful stellar modeling as well. So anyway, so we're looking at, so it's as I come back to this irony of being such a quite close star, we still have massive uncertainties as to exactly what the mass might be, exactly what the radius, like that's a pretty big error bar that I gave you, right? 700 yeah. to 900. Yeah, that's that's pretty big. Yeah, uh, the mass is maybe somewhere between 16 to 20 times the mass of the sun. Would that be the case for any star, though, like is it is it that we have these models, we have an understanding of stars, of how stars work, and we know that, you know, stars of this kind of mass would look like this and stars of this kind of mass and this kind of age would look like this. But for any given star, like they're really far away. <laughs> it's really hard <laughs> to actually get information about any given star. Would that be right? Or is Betelgeuse a bit weird in that regard? Well, actually, Betelgeuse is weird. It's It's one of these... It depends is the answer right. to your question. Okay. It depends. Okay. It depends on the star. Some stars we can get mass, age, radius, etc., crazily precisely, like down to the 5%, 10% level, mm-hmm. maybe even 2% for some wonderful stars. And, again, that's mostly astroseismology that's doing that. Just a plug there. Yeah. Yeah. But um, those are any particular stars that we have very great, very good measurements, well understand their pulsation mechanisms, well understand their evolutionary paths, etc., the typical garden star, we can get down to sort of 10, 20% measurements is fairly typical. Okay. Um, the, obviously, the closer it is, then the easier it is to get more information about the star. You can get better um, spectroscopy. You can get better sure. measurements. Yeah. So it's a kind of a bit easier. And then the further away it is, the harder it gets. So your errors get larger. But Betelgeuse is kind of... And contrary to both of those, because although it's a pulsating star, it's it's at this this phase of its life where there's so much uncertainty in what it's actually doing. <laughs> it's in the final throes of being one of these large red giants, and it's got epicycloidal mass loss. So its mass is actually changing as it you get right, loss off okay. the surface. It's it's what do you even count as the surface as? Kind of an undefined end? question. Yeah, exactly. So it's doing all these kind of weird, non, I guess, typical things. Right, which makes it very difficult to then understand. So how big and how old and how massive is this yeah. Is this thing? Like if it, was, if it was leading up to this point, you could say, well, we know what this star is like and we know what it's doing and we know where it's going to go. But when you're in the middle of that weirdness, It's really difficult to know exactly what you're looking at. Okay, that makes sense. And these phases of a star's lifetime are pretty short in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. And that means two things. Uh, It means that we can't find a lot of stars out there that are in this phase because effectively 
we humans are looking at a snapshot of the universe, yeah, right? A really short one. Yeah, exactly. We've only been observing these kind of stars for you know, a couple of hundred years, let's say, with precision instruments. And so how do you talk about an evolutionary process that lasts hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years? Well, you don't. You don't observe that for a single star. You have to go out and say, well, that one's at that point and that one's at that point. So maybe there's a you can connect the dots. Right. Yeah, yeah, like. yeah, yeah. yeah. But for the shortest phases, there's many, many fewer stars at that phase to actually study. So they become a bit more, you know, question marks. Yeah, what's going on there? That makes sense. You're you're trying to sort of extrapolate from much smaller amounts of data, Mm. and that leads to much bigger error bars. Exactly. Yeah. So Betelgeuse is one of those. It's in it's in the final throws, which is a very short period in a star's lifetime. So. Maybe a few hundred thousand years at most. So you're right. I mean, the the irony of it being close and really big Mm. to the point where we can actually see it as a Mm. disc, but it's still too weird for us to really understand. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So that gives us an idea about Betelgeuse, but Mm -hmm. tell us a bit more about what's been going on since the last time we looked at it. There was the great dimming, Mm -hmm. but what's been happening since? Like, why is this back in the news again now? Yeah, well, Betelgeuse is a long-known variable star. Okay. It's one of the first known variable stars in terms of at least Western science, and there's some pretty good evidence now that suggests that ancient cultures, including Aboriginal cultures, knew that Betelgeuse changed in brightness hundreds and wow. thousands of years ago. Wow. I mean, you know, that's that's got to be a fairly significant amount of change if with the naked eye you're looking at it and going, that's, that's not as bright as it was, mm. or that's you know, that's brighter now than it was a while ago, like within living memory or at least, you know, uh, within storytelling memory, you know. Well, it's even shorter than that because the brightness is kind of around about 400 days for Betelgeuse typically. So you're talking about, you know, just kind of over a year. Yeah, even so, like – That's some pretty good observation. But then again, I guess before Netflix, there wasn't much else like you were. People were very observant. Yeah. And and it formed a whole lot of um, cultural mythology about why things were going brighter and dimmer and different cultures had different stories behind all that. Um, And there's some fascinating ones that Mm. we don't have time to really go into all the details, but um, we can put some links up to some of the the wonderful um, evidence for ancient people's understanding Betelgeuse. So, yeah, one of the first known variable stars because it has varied in brightness pretty regularly, pretty large variation for a pretty long time. Okay. Uh, Now, most of that – well, that variation is now understood to be what's called a radial pulsation. All right, as in in and out. Yep. Right. Yep. So the whole radius of the star kind of changes, which changes its overall brightness over this 400-ish day period. Uh, And we understand that to be driven by what's called the kappa mechanism or opacity mechanism. It kind of means you've got energy that's trying to escape the core of the star, right? The core of the star is doing all the fusion. There's lots of energy, lots of photons coming out. But there are particular zones in the star which are at a particular set of temperatures and pressures that mean that it's actually the opacities get really high, which means photons get blocked. They kind of they come into a resistive area of the star. And that causes them to build up. So you get the kind of this buildup of almost photon pressure behind that zone. It pushes the whole radius of the star out. Like inflating like a balloon. And, yeah. yeah. Right. 
yeah, the star then gets more rarefied, it cools down a little bit, it becomes more transparent to the photons, the photons all escape, and then gravity then pulls it gently right, back and, in. Right, and repeat cycle. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. So the actual kind of um, nuclear sort of um, chemistry behind all that's a little bit you know, subtle, but that's broadly kind sure. of what's going on when you get these these. So that's your sort of roughly 400 day, like call it a bit over a year. That's that kind of cycle is yeah. sort of pulsing in and out, almost breathing. Mm, mm. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, Betelgeuse has been known to do that for a very long time. Okay. Then we had the great dimming event. And the great dimming event, as we saw that just the, the brightness that we see from Earth of Betelgeuse just plummeted. It was it was crazy times because often you can sort of look at Betelgeuse and Rigel. You can see Rigel's a little bit brighter, but not hugely. And you can kind of say, oh, yeah, they're the, they're the parts of Orion. They're the bits that you recognize along with the, the three stars in the middle. But as a fainter red star, I was really searching. I was like, well, it didn't go away, but I was, I was but it confused. Got, it got dimmer, it like got a lot noticeably dimmer. dimmer. And so what happened? Well, we understand that to be something to do with – the a surface mass ejection. So a whole lot of stuff came off the surface of Betelgeuse and kind of like a big cloud. Mm-hmm. And then when that um, material left the surface of Betelgeuse, it cooled down even more. It formed molecules. It kind of became a big, dusty, black kind of cloud. cloud. And it blocked our view of right. Betelgeuse Okay, so it, So it's sort of sloughed off a, a layer, hmm. which then obscured it from us. Yeah, and it seemed to have been a clumpy sort of layer, kind of happened to be in the direction of between Earth and Betelgeuse. Right, okay. So this sort of clumpy mess just kind of got in the way. All right, so that's explainable. Yeah, cool. yeah. Um, and then that uh, over time, since since that um, event, and mostly over yeah, 2019 into 2020, then since then, Betelgeuse has been coming back to normal. That we think that cloud has been kind of dissipating or moving, moving on in its life, and uh, Betelgeuse has been slowly brightening up again. Interesting thing is that from 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 that dimming period onwards, Betelgeuse wasn't brightening and dimming at four hundred days anymore. It was doing it at two hundred days. So it's it's sped up. Yeah, as as it's a doubled res- as a actually, result of in speed. As a result of like losing that skin? Well, we think it's all part of the same story. Okay. And that's what the paper is that kind of triggered all this coming through and in, in different news articles and so on. So the paper itself is by uh, Morgan McLeod et al. Um, from the Center for Astrophysics, Harvard, Smithsonian, that kind of team. Okay. And they were looking at, okay, how do we explain the fact that you've got this dimming and then it's the period's doubled and then it's also getting really, really bright now, which is... And to be clear, the, the brightness isn't just that the clouds have passed. Like, it's not like the sun coming out behind the clouds on a, no. on a, on a cloudy day. This is the, the the intrinsic brightness of the star itself. It appears to be, yeah. Right. So, I mean, we're, we're talking, we're uh, late May. I think our record measurement is somewhere around the end of April. It got really, really bright. And I can give you some numbers to kind of... Sure. Because we're talking about bright dim, bright dim. So Betelgeuse, we sort of we assign a brightness to the stars in the sky uh, based on something called the magnitude scale. It's, it's really it's one of these things in astronomy. It's a hangover from long ago. It made sense to someone at some point, and we still use it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's a logarithmic scale, which means it's not kind of you don't double in brightness for every double in number. It's one of those weird ones. Right. Yeah. Um, but we, we and it's it's also backwards. <laughs> 
for fun. <laughs> it sounds like a really bad scale, but let's well, go with it. Well, you astronomers are happy with it, or at least you're 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 resigned to it. So well, it has elements. I, I mean, I'll defend it a little bit. I'll defend the backwardness of it. Let's say because at least the backwardness, I think I understand. So what what happened was somebody at some point decided, okay, we'll pick the brightest star in the sky and we'll call that zero. Okay. All right, because nothing's going to get brighter than that star. We're not going to discover more and more stars that are brighter than that star. All right, so there's your there's your baseline. Yeah, we'll call we'll that call zero. zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they chose Vega, which is not the brightest star in the sky, but they chose that <laughs> but one. But it seemed like a good idea. Sure. And Vega's also not quite zero. But anyway, <sighs> yep. roughly, roughly, roughly. The idea was good. Yeah, and then, you know, as we discover more and more stars with telescopes, et cetera, et cetera, then you can carry carry on going up. You can always add more numbers that are higher, but you can't go backwards. Okay, that makes it like if you'd said Vega is ten, right? And then you got dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. Eventually, you have to go. Oh, there's one even dimmer than that. And now we're into negative one and negative two and negative three, and that's just complicated. So start at zero, and then as it gets dimmer, we go up in number. Is that, that what you? That say? was the concept. Okay, yeah. Then I can see the the reasoning. Yeah, unfortunately, it didn't pan out because right. although Vega <laughs> is close to zero, there are stars that are brighter. So yeah. Sirius is a negative number. And so you're going example. negative anyway. Anyway, <laughs> moving on from that. So we have these numbers. So um, Betelgeuse is known to vary from it's it's sort of average, if you like. It's just um, it's about 0.5. Mm-hmm. It's bright. It's a bright star, uh, and it, it was known to vary from about zero to 1.6. Okay. And sorry, can I just interrupt? Is this brightness? Is this perceived brightness to us here on Earth, or is this? intrinsic this is how much energy it's spitting out this is just the brightness we observe in the sky here on earth so it doesn't make any sense to ask how bright is the sun on this scale oh it's like minus 20 something right but that's just because it's like really big and it's right there right yeah. yeah okay right um so so this is yeah a logarithmic scale so that that kind of that variation between zero and 1.6 let's say that's a that's a variation of about 1.3 times in terms of brightness okay um so the whole but during the great dimming it went sorry sorry from from the great dimming to the point now is much more than that it's about 3.6 times right so that's so it's when it, from when it was dimmest to about now it's now about three and a bit half times brighter that's than it quite used a lot. to be yeah, yeah, exactly. So that kind of gives you a sense of the brightness change. It's, it's significant. Hmm. Now, you can th- also talk about brightness of stars in terms of the chart toppers. Yeah, okay. You know, the, this is sort of going back in the in the direction of last week, the the the, the goats, the boats, yeah, um, yeah, in terms of star brightness. Yeah, I mean, we sort of hold a list in our heads, if you like, of the brightest stars in the sky. Um, and impressively, Betelgeuse has gone from being the 10th brightest star to being now the 7th. Right, moved up the charts with a bullet. Yeah. Okay. Which, like, again, that sounds like a pretty significant change. Mm, exactly. So it's overtaken Achenar and Procyon, if you're mm. watching those if ones. If you're keeping, keeping track at home. Um, and right now it's pretty much on par with Rigel. So mm. if it gets any brighter, it'll actually outshine Rigel, which is fascinating, a, I think. It's a lot. You know. Incidentally, it's, it's interesting that um, all of these really bright stars, for very, fairly obvious reasons, they all actually have names. Like you're not talking about stars which are BX5980Q. 
you know, the, mm. the other astronomical names that we so often come across on this podcast. These are stars with names, and presumably that's because they're the big bright ones. They are. And so we gave are. them names. I think we talked about the names, and well, at least my notes said that we talked about the names back in the previous episode we did on Betelgeuse. I think we might have, yeah. So we talked about the Arabic origins of most of the, at least the stars that do have names mm. in the sky. Uh, and, well, the the... Yeah, origins. They're not all exact Arabic matches these days. I think you can spell Betelgeuse with in seven different different ways, depending on how you want to translate it. But however, however, <laughs> anyway, so it's moved from number ten, number ten to number seven. To number seven, yep. yeah, and it may well become number six soon. Goodness, okay, so, yeah, amazing that just within the space of a few years, like not even a human lifetime we can go out there look at the night sky and have seen well betelgeuse is really much a lot fainter than rigel hang on betelgeuse is now a whole lot brighter than rigel isn't that weird so and i mean as you say it's like this is really short period of time lifespan of a star really long time Mm. like this is nothing like what is the lifetime of a of a star like like betelgeuse well, we think it's going to have a couple of hundred thousand years if it's lucky, actually. Right. Maybe maybe a bit less than that. Maybe about a hundred thousand years left. Left, but how yeah. long has it been going? Oh, that's a good question. I can't remember what the original mass of Betelgeuse was, but it's going to be on the order of maybe a billion years, maybe right. maybe a few hundred million. So like three years is yeah. is literally a rounding error. So like that's quite extraordinary. Yeah. So it... We just keep coming back around to, Emily, <laughs> what's going on with Beetlejuice? What is right. happening here? And and the question that everyone wants answered is, are we about to see this thing go kablooey? Right. Let's let's answer the first question first. Okay. What's going on? What's because going on? that's exactly what the, the paper, as I promised, yep. was gonna, is talking yep. about. So the idea is there has been this um, mode switching which has gone on in Beetlejuice based on a whole series of events that's happened, which has also caused the great dimming. Okay. So the sequence goes something like this. We had an unusually large hot blob. Okay. Is that, is that the official term? It is actually. It's right. in the paper. Yep. Okay. Hot blob. Hot blob. <laughs> you weren't expecting that answer. I wasn't. I wasn't. <laughs> but uh, the paper's actually it's a wonderfully written paper. It's, it's just one of these ones that uses really nice language to describe things. Call it like it's here, like yeah. you see it. Why it's not? a hot blob. Yeah, it's great. So uh, in the surface of, this, of these very big red giants, we have a lot of convection. And convection is the bulk motion of you know, parcels of hot and cold material. So the hot stuff rises, the cold stuff sinks. Sure, just like just like hot and cold air in a room. Yeah. Circulating around. And you get these sort of big parcels. And so lots of convection means lots of bulk motion of material. And that's one way that the energy can be transported from the inside of the star to the outside. Okay. So lots of convection going on. And if you have an unusually large hot blob of rising material in this convective zone, then it can actually cause a bit of a shock to go through because through the system of the star. So, I mean, we're looking at something that's a significant chunk of the radius of the star coming up through it. That shock was able to push a whole bunch of material off the surface of the star. Okay. It was expelled. So that's what caused the dimming. That's what then cooled down, formed the dusky, dusty molecules, etc., that formed the well, the cloud that then blocked our view of Betelgeuse and therefore caused it to dim. So what we think is that this hot blob had another effect inside the atmosphere of the star 
and that it broke the coherence of the pulsation that right. was going on. Okay, this so radial pulsation. This is, this is that 400-day pulsation, yep. in and out, breathing in and out, pretty regular for a really long time. We broke it. Yeah. I don't say we. We didn't do it. The hot blob broke. The hot yeah. blob broke it, yeah. right. So you've got the surface, which was carrying on expanding. So if you have and the, the surface, whatever the surface of the star <laughs> means, uh, carrying on outwards, so that's still expanding. But the deeper layers started to contract. Now, those two things should have been doing the same things at the same time. Okay. Right? But then they sort of switched so that they were doing opposite things at the same time. I can see how that would cause some problems. Well, this, what that does is it sets up a particular zone or a particular imaginary line inside the star, imaginary surface inside the star called a node. Mm -hmm. And the node is the bit that doesn't move. Okay. So on one side of the node, stuff's moving in. On the other side of the node, stuff's moving out. And on the nodes, like, no, we're just... Nothing's moving. We're the bit that's not going anywhere. Exactly. Um, and this is perhaps familiar to people who and who work with music. Um, this comes across a lot because this moves the pulsation from what's known as the fundamental mode to the first overtone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you play a stringed instrument, you know, these are your, these are your harmonics on a guitar, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so a guitar string, for example, it's pinned down at two ends, right? If you use your finger to pin it down in the middle, you've gone from the fundamental mode of that string to the first overtone. Right, and so you've got a node in the middle there where you've got string moving on one side of it, string moving on the other side of it, but that bit where your finger is just touching lightly, right in the middle of the string, it's not going anywhere. That's mm. your node. Mm, and exactly. you've just changed the note of the string by a whole octave. You've doubled the frequency. Exactly. So you've doubled the, the period, well, in this case, half the period of the pulsation. So it now goes for 200 days 200, instead of 400. 400. Right. Someone's just just done a harmonic on this star. Yeah. That's exactly. cool. It's very cool, isn't it? So it, it's not a coincidence that, you know, he's gone from this wonderful round number of 400 to 200. It's, it, it's halved for a reason. Nice one. So this, this whole process of big hot blob causes big dust cloud that, that made us see it go dim, right? Mm. But that blob has caused the star to go into a different kind of oscillation. Mm -hmm. It's now doing something different. Yeah, it's basically just pulsating yeah. twice as fast as it used to. Yeah, yeah. And, um, now, we think that this is not going to carry on for like, for a long time even, maybe five to ten years, because that whole convective motion, that's bigger than the motion that's going on in terms of the pulsation at now at this point. So the bubbles are moving kind of at a higher velocity than the actual pulsation velocity inside right. the star. So that's going to cause what we call damping or it's going to kind of wash out eventually this whole pulsation and you'll go back to the fundamental pulsation, right. the 400-day okay. You're sloshing period. around too much stuff. That's not a stable it's not a stable oscillation. Not when you've got the big blobs yeah. going through it as yeah. well. That makes yeah. sense. Exactly. So, yeah, that's quite exciting. So mm. we're going to see this kind of 200-day period for perhaps maybe five, maybe ten years. That's cool. And then eventually that will sort of die out. Well, do we think that will happen quickly or will it just slowly fade out and you'll get the 400 taking over again? It's a good question. I think there'll probably be a slow fade, but it'll be. Well, I guess there's there's a point at which we won't be able to detect that that, that frequency is kind of fading out. Yeah. yeah. So, do I mean do we see this sort of thing happen a lot? You know, do do astro seismologists looking at stars and how they wobble? Do they see these kinds of shifts 
and really over quite short periods of time, shifts from one mode to another, doubling of frequencies or halvings of frequencies. Like, has that come up a lot? Not a lot, but we have seen it before. So that's mode switching. Uh, we have seen it in two, at least two red giants before. Uh, one is Arduratus, which was studied quite intensively 1950s to 1970s that appeared to do the same sort of thing uh, and switch back. Um, and a couple of others we've seen switch back as well from their um, first overtone back to their fundamental mode. And so we think, yeah, this is probably just a thing that red giant stars do. And presumably because they are, like it's because they are so big, you know, the the outer parts of it, it's so diffuse, it's so spread out. You've got these enormous like bulk motions of stuff, I'm guessing, mm. that it's just somewhat easier to get changes in, in modes. It's, it's easier to sort of pluck these harmonics, as it were, because it's so big. Yeah, you don't get such a massive amount of convection um, in a pulsating star typically. Right. So it's when you've got this huge amount of convection and then the instability of causing these these hot blobs that yeah. – that sort of break things up again. Yeah. So it's the mixture of irregularity, huge amount of convection um, that seems to be the trigger for these particular types of stars. Okay. So that seems to explain quite a lot about what's <laughs> going on with Betelgeuse at the moment, that big question of what is going on with this crazy star. Does it does it explain everything? Have we, have we now nailed Betelgeuse down? Uh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, there's a lot we don't know mm -hmm. about Betelgeuse. Um, there are some very interesting questions that each of them on their own probably could have been a whole episode. Right. Okay. Well, do you want to just hint at a few of them? Because I have a feeling that we're probably going to, like, you know, in another 30 episodes, we'll be back on Betelgeuse again because it's just doing crazy stuff. Well, like I mentioned, we don't know the basic parameters. How are we going to find out those? Uh, we think it's maybe got some kind of irregular surface. This is even pointing in that direction, but how do we measure that? How well, do you mean irregular? Like, what do you mean? by that like it's like, spiky well like hot cold Coming spots fur? maybe you know but different bits have different temperatures okay. as different bits of breaking in different parts of the convection i mean something that big it wouldn't surprise me no you know but it's it's just weird um it seems to have well we don't really understand very well it's magnetic fields they're difficult to measure well so i mean as we've addressed before on this podcast magnetic fields are hard anyway magnetic magnetic fields over that kind of size of star it's just that's gonna break your brain yeah there's some evidence to suggest that in human history, Betelgeuse has changed colour. Right. It may have used to have been yellow mm -hmm. or more yellow right. than it is now. Now it's very red. So that's an interesting thing. Um, we would like to know perhaps, this is this is the big one, I think, was Betelgeuse a binary star at Ooh. some point in its life? Is there evidence for that? There's, a, there's some ideas. There's some bits about Betelgeuse that seems to be rotating incredibly quickly, maybe, maybe too fast. So it could have, could have got a big fling from what? What's like swallowing its binary? Well, partner? that's one option. Did it eat its binary companion or did it kick, right. get kicked off? Or... Right. So, I mean, <sighs> the, it, it having been a binary is a potential explanation for some weird stuff about, yeah. about okay yeah it's it's traveling at a stupid rate of knots through its local part of the galaxy right <laughs> something it's, happened yeah wow okay so the, you know the masses of unresolved questions okay um and i guess the big one that everyone wants to know when's it going to blow yeah because i mean let's back up a little bit there's that's not just a, a random question. Like, it is reaching the end of its life. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it's got something like maybe, what, a hundred, a couple of hundred thousand years left yeah. of a, in the order of a billion years life 
time. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's really in those last phases. Mm-hmm. Like that's nothing. It's nothing. But it doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. No. Like there's, there's quite a large amount of time. Well, it could happen within, yes. as far as humans are concerned. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, people have been quoting 10,000 to 100,000 years for a long time. Okay. I mean, because basically those numbers don't change even when no. <laughs> no. <laughs> time I mean, advances by 20 a, a, years. A long time is is a very small amount of time in the lifetime. Indeed. Right? So, so the first thing we need to address is, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of this thrown out whenever you talk about astronomy. Could it have exploded already? Okay, right. So would you – Mm. Mm, yeah. Red giant, really, could have exploded already? Well, I mean, this is the idea that things are very far away, therefore it takes time for the light oh, to travel see. to us. Not in the sense of we can see it as a red giant now and so at some time in the past to get to that point it could have exploded, but rather are we about to see <laughs> that mm. it's exploded any day now? Okay, sure. There's that whole weird thing about when when is now yeah. in the universe. Exactly. So so the light that we received from Betelgeuse actually left Betelgeuse maybe around about 550-ish years ago. Because it's 550-ish light years away. Exactly. That's how that works. Yeah. yeah. So maybe 200 years ago it exploded and we're just waiting. Sure. Okay. Um, that's incredibly unlikely. I mean, it, we, we talked about this not long ago, that what are the odds hmm. that this would happen at the time when we happen to have the ability to look at it really closely. Exactly. So, you know, it could happen, but it's very unlikely, mm. statistically. And Indeed, yeah. And it, sure. just, it seems like Betelgeuse is kind of – it's still got a little ways to go, let's say, in its evolution. And that's what um, came out of the dimming event and particularly um, Meredith's paper about – measuring the pulsations and measuring the the fact that it looks or modeling the fact that it looks like Betelgeuse is still in this helium fusion phase of its life. Okay. Which that's the kind of the longest period of the last throws, if you like. Helium fusion is and then you have subsequent episodes after that. So you can go into fusing higher and higher order elements before you get the big the big bang. Yeah, I like, mean the, the, the gravity the will drag it down and it'll just it'll keep ramping up those fusion reactions until it there's nothing left yeah. to, to fuse, at which point all hell breaks loose. But those last phases, like how how long are we talking about between, oh, we've run out of hydrogen, quick, let's do helium, through to we've got nothing left? Well, helium you're looking at yeah, at least tens of thousands of years. Okay. Um, and I guess that's where this 100,000 years comes from. And then they get progressively shorter and shorter the further you go up the periodic table. So I think you get a few years out of, say, carbon, nitrogen, silicon. You end up with only kind of a couple of days worth of fusion um, out of it before because it just gets faster and faster and faster. Right. There's less and less fuel to get through. So everything happens quite quickly, right. even it's on all, human it's time like scale. The is just panicking. It's like, just throw this at it. We've got some yeah. silicon. Just throw it in there. And at the very last point, it's run out of fuel. And at that point, it's like a star of this size. Hmm. What then have like supernova? Is that what we're it talking about It is supernova, here? yep. yep. Right. So Betelgeuse is definitely big enough to do what we call type 2 supernova. And, so. and just remind us, what does that involve? What happens? Well, <laughs> so that's when, um, there's, I mean, in short, basically, the star can't hold itself up against gravity anymore. So the, the whole core is sitting there and you're, you're, it's getting compressed by gravity. There's more and more compression coming on, uh, pushing it you know, smaller and smaller. But there are limits to that. 
you can't compact matter infinitely dense. There's just, there are strict limits. There are rules here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and eventually you get to the point where you end up with just a little ball of neutrons in the center that you can't compress. And at that point you get, first of all, an implosion of the infalling layers of the star, and then they bounce off this this neutron ball in the center and they explode. Right, that's that's the big explodey part. The big supernova is once you bit. make this really really dense core of neutrons, then everything else falling into on in onto it just goes bang off the off of that and explodes outwards, ludicrously energetically. Indeed, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we've established you don't want to be anywhere near that. You know, it, yeah, so it's a huge huge supernova. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. As we're approaching that, like what you said a minute ago was, is that Betelgeuse still seems to be in maybe the helium burning phase, which could go on for a very long time in in our lifespan. Mm. Um, but are there like are there signals and signs that we know of of this thing is about to go supernova, or have we just like we don't have that kind of time? We don't know. Like, are, are there things that you would look for? It's interesting. So there's a couple of ways you can answer that question. So the first way is if you were just staring at a star that was literally about to go, could you tell it was about to go? I guess that's my question. So the answer to that is actually no. Right. Because there is not enough time for information about what is going on in the core to travel out to the surface at this point. Wow. Like that's that's a really bizarre statement, which I think I'm going to need you to explain because like it's traveling at the speed of light, isn't it? Well, not quite. No, <laughs> I mean, um, my what my sort of canonical example is: you take a, a photon that's produced in the center of the sun, right? Cent- photon that's produced in a fusion reaction in the center of the sun takes an average of a hundred thousand years to reach the surface. Okay, I do remember us talking about this before, and that still breaks my brain because. Like the sun's big, but it's not that big. It's not that that's the amount of time that it takes the photon to travel that distance at the speed of light. But what's going on is it's getting what absorbed and re-emitted and bouncing around. Yeah, basically. exactly. Yeah, so it can it can only travel a particular distance um, before it gets absorbed again, and then it's re-emitted. But it's not necessarily re-emitted in the original direction it was going. So how long did you say? About a hundred thousand years. So all of this stuff could be happening down in the center of this star that we're looking at, which is about to explode, but we wouldn't know because. The information wouldn't get out to us. Well, yeah. So the only thing we can observe is the surface. So that's all we can tell. I mean, that is just nuts. Like I, I get it. I understand it. I can, I can figure that out logically, but it still makes no sense. Like that's mad. Okay. So, but we do have another mechanism which we can say for sure whether or not a supernova has happened. Well, you see a a big explosion. Well, that, 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 (laughs) but even um, in the case of Betelgeuse, um, if we, we would know very definitively if it had gone to a supernova because we would see neutrinos. Ah, you mean, so we're looking in the direction of Betelgeuse. Mm. We can't see a big explosion yet, Mm. but there's this other sign, which is neutrinos. Explain. So while the photons will take a while to get to us, the neutrinos don't really understand that the rest of the universe exists. (laughs) Okay. So just to be clear, neutrinos, right? Neutrinos, tiny, really, really, really almost massless. They are tiny, tiny particles. uh, And they're emitted from certain nuclear reactions. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of them flinging around in the cores of stars because they come out of nuclear reactions, right? But the thing about neutrinos is 
they they only see those kinds of nuclear reactions. They they have no charge. Yep. So they don't see positive and negative electric charges. They don't bounce off things in the same way or get absorbed by things in the same way that photons would. They just mm. like there's huge numbers of them just whistling through us right now mm. and going right through the earth without even batting an eyelid. And so with a massive explosion like a supernova, you'd have just ridiculous numbers of neutrinos being flung out, but they would immediately leave the star. Yes. And we'd see that. So, yeah, we would see it. I mean, we'd have still have to wait your 550 years. Sure. They still travel at the speed of light, but they travel... Or slightly less because they've got a little bit of mass. But, yeah, uh, close enough. To yeah, it. yeah. So they travel close to the speed of light. So we, j- we would see them approximately 550 years after the explosion, but they travel direct is the point. Right. And we've had very sensitive neutrino detectors switched on on Earth for... I don't know, a few decades now, I guess 30, seems, 40 yeah, years about at right. least. Yeah. Yeah. So we would see what's estimated to be something like 100 trillion extra neutrinos should Betelgeuse have gone something supernova. Something just happened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As we said, I think, again, last episode, anytime you talk about trillions, that's a sign something just happened. Mm. Yeah. Now, we wouldn't detect all those, but we, no. we would certainly detect, whoa, hang on, what was that? <laughs> we just saw three neutrinos. What just happened? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we would definitely know from the neutrinos if it happened kind of, say, 500 whatever years ago. That would be a big sign to say, point your telescopes up there because we might see something soon. Yeah. Uh, Now, the other thing that would start to get quite exciting would be um, we would eventually see the brightening, right? Um, And this is where everyone gets excited because you think, is it dangerous? Because it's very close to us. Is is Betelgeuse going to be so bright? We're all going to be blinded by the light. It's going to outshine the sun. All the neutrinos are going to fly through us and Mm -hmm. radiate us and we're all going to die. It's the end of the world as we know it. Okay. The neutrinos are not anywhere near enough to cause any kind of neutrino I think if you're going to die from neutrinos, there's probably other problems coming Mm. your way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, there's not enough to do any sort of damage to humans and the neutrinos. Brightness-wise, you're probably looking at something about a quarter the brightness of a crescent moon. Okay. So that's bright, but it's not bright, bright. It's not going to light up the sky. No, I'm not no. really frightened of something no. that's about a quarter of a quarter of the moon. brightness of a crescent moon. Well, maybe I just drew a crescent moon. Maybe a quarter <laughs> of brightness of the moon. Let's be generous. Okay. So, I mean, that would look cool. To be, to be clear, we would notice. Oh, yeah. You would like, notice. That's a really big, bright thing in the sky. Yeah. But we're not going to be able to read by it. No. No. I mean, and we're not going to be irradiated and kind of start turning into X-rays or whatever it is that comic books you know, right. have when you right. have a big supernova near this you. This is not super nasty Death Star no. in the sky. This is No, and it would last okay. for kind of maybe three months. Yeah. And then it would just kind of fade away. And... I mean, it'd be cool. Like, yeah. I can understand why people are interested in this. Very exciting. This, this is, this is, we're not downplaying this in any way, shape or form. We're just not going to die is no, what you're saying. No, exactly. Yeah. No chance of dying from a star <sighs> that is about a quarter of the brightness of the moon. Mm. Sorry. How close would a star have to be before we would start sweating? Uh, like this, this is we, You said this is 550 light years-ish away. Yeah, yeah. Like are we talking tens of light years? Hundred, like how close? I think it's on the order of about tens. Yeah, definitely Alpha Sen mm-hmm. uh, or Proxima Centauri, if that, our closest star. If that did a supernova, we'd be in trouble. We'd be in trouble, okay. And, and that's, that's, remind me? That's it's about three uh, light three years away. light years away, okay, yeah. okay. So, so we've got a bit of a buffer there. We're, yeah. We're okay. Yeah, we've got a couple, 500 to mm-hmm. three. It's quite a big difference. Yeah, good. Yeah. Um, 
And then finally, we would eventually, about 100,000 years after Betelgeuse exploded, we would get the shockwave to reach us on Earth. That's entertaining. What 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 would that be then? Uh, not much. Okay. Yeah. But what is it like? What's it's just kind of like the the that would be kind of your the the pulse, if you like. That's just traveling through the shock. That's traveling through of through the interstellar medium yeah. to get to us. Yeah. Through the vacuum of space, which is not a vacuum, as we've established before. There's some stuff. Yeah. There, it's not a material not a shock. It's, it's kind of the photon shock right. that comes through. Okay. And so, yeah, and that would probably just be deflected by the – well, you'd be a whole lot of charged particles coming through and we've got a magnetic field and an atmosphere so those charged particles would just bounce off us basically. Again, nothing to be worried about. Might, might you know, cause some interesting aurorae? Possibly, example, possibly. I'm not even sure if it's enough for that, to be quite honest. Yeah, compared to the solar wind, not yeah, much. No. Yeah, no. Because by that point, I mean, remember this is going out in all directions. It's not mm. like Beetlejuice is aiming it at us. No, no. Like a beam. It's like all directions. We're not special. Uh, and so by the time it gets to us, we're just one tiny dot. Yeah. Wow. But, yeah. Cool. Okay. So, so that's about it. Understandable that people are interested in this, right? This mm. would be a really cool event to be able to go out and go, hey, kids, look, this just happened. Look at it. But we're not expecting this to happen tomorrow. Astronomers would be so overjoyed. They would go nuts. Because we would get to observe this thing from a safe distance, but close enough that we could actually make brilliant measurements of it. I mean, when you do actually talk about the other stars that are even more likely to go supernova than Betelgeuse, I think we've got two other very clear candidates. Okay. Yeah. Um, we've got Eta Carina, very, very famous um, nebula star that's a that's really unstable, that seems to be uh, about to go. Another one called Rho Cassiopeia, which um, is in the constellation of Cassiopeia, the big W uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. So those two um, are sort of, I guess, higher up the most likely to go supernova list. Right. Um, Still not talking about kind of next week scales. We still are talking about tens of thousands of years, most likely. Well, I mean, surely there's no, like over these kinds of, of time periods, like the the uncertainty in that surely has to be thousands, if not tens of thousands. Of oh years. yeah, definitely. You, there's no way that you could pin that down to. We think it's going to happen in 2025. No, no. no. I mean, it's possible sure. it will happen very, very soon. The thing is with both of those stars is that they're 8,000 and 9,000 light years away, respectively. Right. That's a lot further. That's an order of magnitude or more, almost 20 times as far. Mm. It's a lot. Yeah. yeah. So they're not going to be as spectacular as Betelgeuse in that sense because they're a lot further away. So put this on your astronomer's wish list, I guess, is the point Absolutely. here. It's why whenever this comes up, you like the, the, the excitement of, wow, if that happened, filters through to the headlines and the headlines go, it's about to go. It's, it, no, it's not. It's not about to. No, it's not about to, but it would be so cool if it did. It would be awesome. Emily, I've just had a thought. Is do you know do, do, do astronomers bet on this? Like, is there a, are there odds on on this? There's probably better things to put your money <laughs> against. I mean, the number of years between now and a hundred thousand years from now. I mean, if you imagine that as kind of what do you, what do you call it in the casinos where you have the all the numbers and you put your money on one oh, of like the... Oh, like roulette. That yeah, kind of yeah, thing. yeah, the yeah. roulette wheel. It would be like a roulette wheel except with like 20,000 spaces on it. Yeah. And I'm well, now going to put... 100,000. I'm going to now put a cheeky 50 on number 2023. Yeah, okay. Yeah, fair enough. I can. I mean, 
I think the problem there is that astronomers are probably a bit too numerous to be sucked in by that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. But Listen, we're human enough to really want it. <laughs> that's right. Not so not so numerate that it's like, would it be cool? It'd be mm. cool if it happened, but too numerate to actually put a cheeky 50 on it. That makes a lot of sense. Listeners, if you want to get in touch, Emily, how would they do that? Well, the first thing you would do is go to our website, syzygy.fm, and you would go to the contacts page and you would write us a lovely, lovely message there, as have some other listeners this week. Yeah, we got uh, got an email this week, which we were talking to Emily about it before we started, and I think we've got an episode there. Oh, it's brilliant. We do, so it's we won't really say good. any more about that right now, but just watch this space. There is an episode coming based on listener question, which is always exciting. So stay tuned for that one. Yeah, mm. at the website, there is a contact form. Yes. There is also what? Oh, you can get all the past episodes. And here I would direct you to episode number 56, Mm -hmm. which I guess if you thought about it, we're episode 108, right? We are. So we're in the first overtone of episode 56, which was the original Beetlejuice episode. Wouldn't that be 112? Turns out I can't do maths either. (laughs) It would be nearly the first episode. What were we saying before about astronomers being numerous? Almost. Almost. To within error bars. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 Close enough. Man, that's really annoying. I thought I had a great one there. Do you know what it might mean, though? It might mean that in four episodes' time, we have to do Beetlejuice again because we will have seen it all exploded. Possibly. Yes. But you can see other episodes in our back catalogue as well. Other episodes are available. Yeah. Other ones you might find useful, such as Stellar Revolution, (laughs) where Emily gets the numbers right. Oh, dear. We are also on the Instagrams at SyzygyPod. We're on Facebook. Just do the search bar thing. And listen, if you want to support the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. Tell everyone. Tell everyone you know that we exist. Tell them to go and find us and tune in. Give us a couple of stars. Give us a review to help us rise up through the noise of the podcasting universe. That's the best way to support us. But if you want to fling some money our way go to patreon.com slash syzygypod to help us keep the show running the electrons flowing through the website and to do the thing that we love to do and speaking of the thing we love to do we'll be back again for another episode sometime really soon emily yes we're gonna do it and i'm gonna start my new notebook very soon i I gotta complete the old one you do have to complete the old one but that's all right you've got a couple of new notebooks there and we've got to put something up on the whiteboard this is really important i'm losing sleep over this one listen everyone we'll catch up with you at the next episode. Until then, Emily, see you later. See you later. Bye, everybody. 